0: A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 89th episode of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose, the host. Of the show, and this is where we talk about interesting people and learn about interesting things. And that's why I have on Julian McClements for this episode. And Julian is the author of a book called Future Foods How Modern Science is Transforming the Way We Eat. And this is freaking fascinating. You guys are gonna love this. I was blown away by this talk with Julian. It's so fun because you know I'm always trying to eat healthy, I eat my smoothie and stuff, but turns out the smoothie could just be going right through me I'm pooping out all the nutrients I need future food I need science to develop better nutrients and food for me to eat So that I can have better stuff So we talk about all that uh, The issues that we have with food now Do we have enough food for our world population And the growing population We talk about how to make foods healthier And at the same time, safer We talk about sustainability, a big, big issue, how to make things taste better while also making them healthier for us, and making food easier, like maybe a 3D food printer right in your home. Print whatever you want, whenever you want, like a Willy Wonka type of gum situation. It's fun. I really, I think you're really going to like this episode. So let's get to it. Here is Julian McClements, uh, the author of Future Foods. Julian, we're going. How you doing? Very well. And yourself? I'm doing good. Stoked to talk. You look a lot better than I do with that, that beautiful red wall behind you. And it's a nice color contrast. I'm here in this, this dim light, but, but that's okay. You're, you're supposed to look better than me.
2: I don't know about that. <laughs> I, feel, I feel better. I went out for a couple of pints with uh, another professor last night. So I feel a little bit dodgy. <laughs> All
1: right. Well, well, we'll try to get through this then. Uh, but man, I am I am I'm very interested to talk to you because I feel I, I get frustrated with with food sometimes. I think and and just uh, I I always I often say that I'm like I'm just envious of my dog who has I just give her dog food twice a day. She has dog food; it's always there. She doesn't have to think about what she's going to eat or how to be healthy. Like hopefully, it has all of the nutrients she needs and. You know, it's not exciting, I guess, but her food is just taken care of for her. She doesn't even have to think about it.
2: Yeah, but would you want a life like that? Right, that's true. It's like uh, we've done some work with um on a NASA project. And like when you talk to the NASA scientists, one of the things they say is the most depressing thing when you're in outer space is like you you're basically getting fed with something that looks and tastes like dog food. <laughs> <laughs> And if you're going to go on a, 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 you know, like a, a five-year mission to Mars and back, you don't want to be eating that every day. And I think it, it does lead to a lot of depression. I don't think we realize how important food is for the sort of psychology or, you know, or your psychological well-being. I think we just take it for granted. We've got all these foods that are readily available in the supermarket and uh, in the restaurants and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, I think, uh, and when you take it away, like for the astronauts or you know, doing some other projects where for like, cancer patients who can't taste anymore, And once they lose their sense of taste, uh, you know, it's one of the most important stimulatory um, emotions you have in your life. When that's gone, you can get very depressed. Yeah. So, How can you create a new generation of foods to overcome those kind of problems?
1: That's a good point because what I'll... So let me tell you about... So what I've done for myself now is I've... Basically, I just make this... I try to make this best smoothie type of thing that I can, put a bunch of vegetables in it and all that stuff. And that's basically my my breakfast and my lunch. So I've, I try to just have like the dog food situation where it's just nutrients really doesn't taste good at all. Um, but then I have, I have dinner where I'm basically free to do whatever I want. And I can, I like now that we're being stuck with, you know, being quarantined now, I've started to cook more and stuff and have been enjoying cooking and I can, I enjoy the taste and the, the whole ritual, I guess, of sitting down and having a meal with, you know, with my girlfriend and, and her sister and my parents, whoever it is, you know? So I I understand that there is a big need for, for that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think with the the smoothies, I'm not sure if that's a good idea. I think everyone thinks that smoothies are healthy. Uh I went to this, I went to this conference a couple of years ago with this um, Dutch professor and he was, um, he was saying, like, the, the structure of the food is just as important as sort of the nutrient content. So he had one of his students, he took a video of him, and he gave him, like, a kilogram of grapes to eat. And it took him, like, 19 minutes to eat these grapes. Uh, and then he gave the same kilogram of grapes, but he made it into a smoothie, and it took him, like, one minute to drink it. Right. So, like, you know, you, if you're trying to control things like obesity, which is a huge problem in America, that, you know, if you've got something that's readily you know, consumable, you, you know, you, you drink a lot more. So you take a lot more calories in and then also the calories get released into your bloodstream much more quickly. And you get this like spike of glucose in your blood, which can eventually lead to things like diabetes. Oh, man. so, so I don't know. So you, so I think you'd be much better eating the, the sort of whole, whole fruits and vegetables than the, uh, the smoothie ones. But saying that it's probably better having a smoothie than it is, you know, getting down on some, um, you know, Captain Crunch or something
1: like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, it's, okay. That's, that's fair. It's better than, it's probably better for me to just eat the vegetables and fruits that I have in there, you know, straight up as they, as they grow. But, uh, okay. That, I mean, that makes sense, but I, I don't know how, you know, this, you're not necessarily, are you a nutritionist? Would you consider yourself a nutritionist? No,
2: no I'm a trained as a physical chemist, like, okay. uh, but with a with focus on foods, but a lot of my work is related to nutrition now. So a lot of my research is using nanotechnology to change the way that foods behave inside your body. Yeah. So We do a lot of work of creating these little tiny particles. um, So we like nano-sized foods, you know, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Ant-Man or something like that, where you shrink something from a large size to a very small size. And when it becomes small, it behaves very, very differently inside your body. So we've shown that you can really sort of boost the amount of vitamins and minerals and stuff that get absorbed by your body by using these sort of nanotechnology approaches. Wow. So just to give you an idea, like, if you look at, like, the, the, the size of the planet Earth and you shrunk it down to a pea, that's about a million times smaller. But if you took that pea and shrunk it down a million times, then that would be one of the, like, the size of one of the nanoparticles that, that we're using. So these are incredibly small particles but they can have really huge effects on, you know, sort of health and wellness and things like
1: that. Wow. So the, would the idea be that that has, you know, that small nanoparticle, is that the correct term? Yeah. Would that have just a, a super dense amount of, of nutrients and or whatever in it for humans?
2: Well, you could have the same amount of nutrients. And for example, you're talking about your smoothie. Mm-hmm. So if you just took your smoothie and you sort of drank it in the morning, that... If you just have the smoothie and the fruits and vegetables and nothing else, most of the nutrients would probably just pass straight through your body and go in the toilet. Mm -hmm. So we do work showing that if you eat carrots, maybe only 5% of them would actually uh, release from the the plant material in a form that you can actually absorb. But if we use these nanotechnology approaches and you put these very small nano-sized fat droplets there, they get broken down in your body and create this sort of nanostructure inside your body that can help the nutrients get come out of the vegetables and then get into your blood. So we just did some work recently with another professor, Hong Xiao, in our department where we had new students as usual and we fed them sort of salads um, and then we measured the blood, the, the level of things called carotenoids in the blood. So these are um, you know, health-promoting um, components in foods and they're really good for things like eye health and maybe anti-cancer stuff. Uh, and if you just did the, the vegetables on your own, you get a very sort of low level of these absorbed by your blood. But if you put them with our specially designed sort of nano food, you could get a huge increase in the amount of these health promoting um, components actually get absorbed into your blood. So in the long run, that could have some really big health benefits.
1: Whoa. Okay. That's interesting. So we, so like, you know, vegetables and fruits, we're told to eat that and they're, they're healthy for us. But what you're working on specifically and, and kind of diving into is how to help these, basically these fuel, these food sources, how to sort of tailor them or create the nutrients that we need. So specifically for the human body so that we can get more benefit that we don't eat a whole carrot and A lot of it just we just poop it out, you know.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think you know from a sustainability point of view and sort of efficiency point of view, if we're growing all these fruits and vegetables, which are packed full of all these beneficial nutrients, but we're not actually absorbing in our body, they're just going into landfill or you know you know down the the toilet and getting cleaned up in the toilet. So you're wasting all these sort of beneficial nutrients. So so what we're trying to do is use that technology for maybe designing it for sort of developing countries where they they don't get enough. Sort of vitamins and minerals in the diet. So what you do is make sure that the ones that they do get get boosted, absorbed into the bloodstream much more better. Or you know, in the in the developed countries, it could have like health benefits. So if, for example, the carotenoids. There's a lot of evidence that if you if you analyze your eye, there's a lot of carotenoids in your eye, and they actually they act like a natural sunscreen in your eyes, so and they protect your eye.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and what they find is that as you get older, it's uh, so something like I think it's like one in seven people go blind due to this disease called macular degeneration. And that's linked to not having enough carotenoids in your eye. So if we can develop these what are called functional foods, where we can boost the level of these carotenoids to actually get into your body, into your bloodstream, then into your eye, we can help prevent these diseases from occurring. Wow. So I think that's like a new generation of foods. is like instead of trying to spend billions of dollars on drugs to, to treat you once you get ill is let's, let's design foods that are going to keep you healthy throughout your life so that you have a better quality of life and you live longer, and we have less, less health care costs.
1: Right, okay. Man, this is great. So it's just, it's just extremely preventative, where you're just you're tailoring your food source to just prevent
2: all these diseases. Yeah, and this is a really old idea, like Hippocrates. So you know, his, one of his saying was, like, let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. And he said this sort of 2,500 years ago. So, you know, he was a person who started modern medicine as a discipline. So right at the beginning of this discipline, they realized that, you know, that food, you know, what you eat could um, affect your health. So I think, you know, now what we're trying to do is use modern science to see well, can we actually design foods in a much more rational way to make them, you know, make them healthy and promote your health and stop disease?
1: Yeah, man, that is exciting. So what... I mean, I imagine this is still being developed, but what would that sort of look like? Is it a pill or a vitamin that you take, or what does that mean?
2: I mean, it could be in the supplement industry, but it could also be things, you know, like just a regular drink, like, you know, your smoothie or some kind of uh, like a a milk drink. So one of the things we've been working on is this compound called curcumin, which comes from uh, turmeric, which is a a spice, which is a lot of um, of Indian food. Mm -hmm. And this is like a compound that's been used for, again, like 2,000 years in traditional um uh Indian medicine. So I mean they, they do they've been developing and using it to sort of treat a whole series of different diseases. And they didn't do any science on it, but like from anecdotally and just seeing whether it worked or not, eventually they came through and found it worked. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do now is actually take that compound and see if we can get into foods and actually test it using modern scientific methods to see, you know, can we actually create a product where it gets absorbed into your blood and then actually look at does it have like anti-cancer effects or does it prevent heart disease or diabetes? Wow. So that would be like a drink, and I think we use nanotechnology to do that. And we came up with this sort of beautiful product which had these tiny liquid droplets in with curcumin packed inside of it. And then I went down the, the our local town before COVID, and we went to a tea shop with my daughter. So there was a fancy tea shop, and they had this um, golden milk, which is like this really traditional Indian sort of beverage that they drink, and they actually drink that as um, you know to, uh, to prevent disease. And it's, it's almost exactly the same as the thing we developed through science. You know, it had small fat droplets in. It also had pepper in because if you put black pepper in, it actually um, protects the um, curcumin from degrading. And it helps it get absorbed. So we put that in ours as well. And then you looked at their product label and it had exactly the same stuff in. So, okay. I mean, their product oh took God. 2,000 years to make and we did it with science, but we came up with the same thing in the end. So I think, I think that's really interesting is, you know, looking at these traditional um, Chinese medicines and Indian medicines and seeing, you know, can some of them don't work, some of them probably harmful, but some of them may have health benefits. Right. Uh, you know, and, and can we use that? Yeah. So they just took
1: it just through a process of trial and error over, you know, thousands of years, they figured it out, but you were able to essentially figure out the same thing using science.
2: Yeah. But it's just like, you know, it's really humbling when you see that, you know, that there is a lot of wisdom in some of these ancient medicines. Yeah. You know, I went to China last year, uh, like last November, and we went to, uh, you know, these traditional med- medicine shops are very, very common there. So I went in one of the old ones and looking at stuff, they had like this ginseng root, and it, I think it was something like $50,000 for like one ginseng root. And you think, like, that's just insane, like the amount of money they're willing to pay on this stuff. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah so, so, and there's a lot of, you know, companies now in America, this is really... Uh, rapidly ch- uh, growing area in the um South american food industry a lot of innovative startup companies are trying to do these kind of products now
1: mm-hmm. yeah so where like is this how like where are we on the development and timeline of this stuff is it starting to happen can we buy like you know that product that you mentioned
2: yeah i think i mean not the one we did we just do it on scientific publications but there are products out there now um actually it was just consulting with a company last week who was making some kind of these uh, products but in like a gel form where it's got all sorts of different nutraceutical combinations in there to try and improve health. Okay. So, so yeah, so I think it, there's going to be more and more of these products on the market in the near future, I think. Yeah. And I think they're supposed to be they're trying to tailor them to specific things. Like if you're working in, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, for a high tech company, you're really stressed all the time. You want something that's going to make you sort of give you a good mood.
0: Right. So,
2: you know, something like that but you know for something else it might be you're getting old and you're starting to get arthritis so can you get a specific combination of nutraceuticals that will treat that particular disease right. or you're prone to diabetes so can you take this before you eat your food and it's going to stop this sugar spike you know in your blood so so i think we're getting more and more you know trying to understand what's going in the body what's understanding you know what's happening in foods and how they interact with each other mm-hmm. so it's incredibly complicated but really really fascinating area i think
1: yeah, I can imagine it's complicated because, like you said, how, you know, different people would want different things depending on their lifestyle or their genetics. But that's kind of where this would hopefully eventually go, right, is that it would be tailored toward an individual.
2: Yes, yeah, so I just sort of I wrote a paper on that recently, so using this for personalized nutrition. So that's a really hugely rapidly growing area in the food industry is that we're all different from each other. So, we, you know, we all have different... Uh, genetic profile we have different epigenetic profile you know we have different microbiome we have different lifestyles different metabolisms so we don't you don't need one food for everybody it's like really what we need to do is tailor your diet to your specific uh nutritional needs and your your specific lifestyle Mm -hmm. so i think there's been a lot of progress being made in that area and i think there's a lot of um companies in that area now where you you know you can um send them some of your poop and some of your blood and they'll analyze it and then they'll do your genetic profile they'll do your microbiome profiles and tell you what kind of microorganisms live in your in your, in your colon uh, and then they'll tailor give you specific diabetes advice based on that I, wow. I, think at the, I think at the moment I think it's it's just starting to take off and I think again the science is so incredibly complicated so I think at the moment they'll probably say eat, eat more plant-based foods eat less uh, you know stay fat sugar and salt you know so well, I think that's going to help everyone. But, you know, I think I can see in the future we will tailor diets to individuals.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's almost the, uh, I don't know, the discouraging part where, the, you know, I can, uh, I mean, I think I'm doing good by eating all these vegetables, but it turns out there's, I could be doing way better with, you know, some nanoparticle food or something, you know?
2: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think if you, if you stick to eating lots of whole, you know, fruits and vegetables, you're going to be fine. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, whether you eat with fat or not, you're still going to be fine. Uh, If you want to boost the bioavailability of these compounds a little bit, even just a bit of salad dressing. Uh, I mean, I think salad dressing is basically these small emulsion droplets. They're probably a bit bigger than the ones we use, but they'll still have, you know, they'll still boost it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when I was on a health kick, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to stick, stick off fat completely. So I would always eat my salads without any fat on it. But then I wasn't getting all these benefits. You know, you're getting some of the dietary fiber, but you're not getting all the other good things in there. Right. So now, you know, I'll always take a little bit of fat with my salad.
1: OK. Yeah, see, it's it just seems like an endless stream of l- things to know about, about how everything affects it. You know, how different foods affect each other and the absorption of a different food. And so I I, I don't envy what you guys are doing, but I appreciate that you are.
2: Yeah, I think the great thing about it is it's so incredibly complicated that we're not going to be out of a job anytime soon. Right. Very true. That's good. Yeah. And I think the other thing is it's just a really exciting area to work in. I think food science is such a multidisciplinary area, you know, where you go from, you know, people who are doing, you know, nanotechnology or chemistry or engineering or biology or sensory science to understand, you know, how foods taste in psychology and then you're looking at things like sustainability in the environment and all these things are interlinked with each other so if you really want to make progress you have to get these really multidisciplinary teams Mm -hmm. and when you do that you just learn so much about different areas so i mean for me it's just i just love working in this area they're really exciting fascinating area
1: very cool well that's good to hear um and then something i have so this is just my perception that this science has kind of been applied to food in the past but more in a, a nefarious way where it's designed to, you know, make it cheaper to produce or make, it, make us more addicted to it or something. So it, uh, is, is that true? I don't, I don't
2: think it was deliberately nefarious, but I think the, the, what the food industry was aiming to do, I think they've been, they were incredibly successful. I mean, I think if you look at how the food has changed from, you know, 100 years ago to now, I mean, you've got incredibly affordable food. It's incredibly safe. Um, it's incredibly diverse and abundant. You can go to any, you know, any supermarket or restaurant. If you're, if you're wealthy, you can go to any supermarket or restaurant and, and, and get stuff. So I think they were really aiming for like cost, safety, and convenience. But I think now you know, this global food supply is – I think we've really got to change because we are caused an incredible amount of environmental damage. So I think, you know, the the population's growing, we're going to have 10 billion people by 2050. People are becoming richer, and when they become richer, they're changing the diet to a more westernized diet, and they're eating more meat. And that's putting a really huge strain on the environment. So we've got more land use, more water use, decreasing biodiversity, and stuff like that. So a big issue in the future is, like, how do we make foods more sustainable? And also, how do we make them healthier? So again, that wasn't really factored in when the food industry was making these foods in the past. So they created all these, you know, processed foods to be cheap and convenient and taste good, but they didn't like consider all the, the sort of bad effects. So that's why we've got like increasing diabetes and heart disease and stroke and cancer, which are often related to the to the kind of, kind of foods that we eat. But I think that's increasingly that's what food scientists are addressing now: is sustainability and health. Is how can we keep affordability and quality? You know, it tastes good, but how can we also make them sustainable and healthy? Yeah. So,
1: yeah, can you could you mention this, but can you kind of elaborate on the what the issue is with meat and why it's so horrible for our planet, basically?
2: Yeah. Well, I think if you look at the agricultural system, I think it's, it's something like eighty percent of the land we use for agriculture is is used for livestock production, but that only produces less than twenty percent of our calories so and that's because you know animals are not very efficient at converting you know what they eat into proteins and calories mm. so so we have to have an enormous amount of land use we need enormous amount of water to you know sort of produce this grass and other feed for the animals um, and there's an enormous amount of pollution associated with that and greenhouse gases uh, and then because we need a lot of land use we're like going into forests and we're decreasing biodiversity so there's all sorts of issues with especially sort of livestock and animal Products, but particularly like sort of beef and pigs and a little bit of chickens. So I think, I mean, that's why people like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are doing so well because they've got a product that is you know, really addressing this issue. Uh, and I think what they've really done is they've targeted meat eaters. It's like, can we create a product that people actually want to eat and actually want to incorporate into diet? Yeah. Because if it, if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter how sustainable and healthy it is. Nobody's going to eat it, and even have no impact. But they, they've managed to create something, you know, from plants, which actually tastes very similar to beef. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that's probably been like the biggest revolution in food science in the last sort of five or ten years is of that plant based meat area.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think it's the science behind that is incredibly complicated. I mean, if you think, you know, if you actually took a microscope and you looked inside like a piece of beef or chicken or something. It's got an incredibly complicated structural architecture and that structural architecture determines like what it tastes like and what it looks like and what it feels in your mouth. And to try and mimic that from plants is, you know, really, really challenging. So it's like, I don't know, trying to make uh, like a house out of tennis balls or something like that, <laughs> so it's like completely different materials, but you're trying to get something that's exactly the same at the end. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to understand, you know, like what makes it look the way it does, you know, what makes it feel the way it does, what makes it taste the way it does. And mm-hmm. and there's a lot of really high level science involved behind that.
1: Yeah. Well it's remarkable. It really does like when you you know, if you just eat it by itself, you can you could taste the difference. It's not meat, but it's it's close enough, it tastes good. But then especially if you're making a whole burger and, you know, putting ketchup and whatever you put on there, like you can't even tell the difference.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And if you got to that point where it tastes better. Or, you know, you can't taste the difference. And why eat beef when you can have this? Yeah, yeah but I think there's still some work. I mean, I think the nutritional aspect still has to be worked on. I think um, at the moment they're probably comparable nutritionally, like a, a plant-based and, and a, a real meat burger. Uh-huh. But, I mean, I think there's definitely ways you could re-engineer the plant-based one to make it uh, healthier for you, you know, so right. to make it less fat, less salt, uh, and actually fortify it with all the sort of nutrients that vegetarians don't get like vitamin B12 and you know vitamin D and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I think yeah yeah, yeah and again, again there's a lot of interesting science behind doing that with all this encapsulation technology the kind of stuff that we work with
1: yeah oh man it's so cool and I think it's great too is how you know the impossible meat and Beyond Burger and all that stuff is so it's, it's like blown up. It's really popular now, too. A lot of people know about it and have, have tried it. So I think it's it must be great on that level to just kind of open people's eyes to the possibility of this and, and sharing what the issue of meat is. And here's a good alternative for you.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, like you know, Pat Brown has started Impossible Foods. I mean, he started as a professor at Stanford, was it like 10 or 12 years ago? He, he left. And now he's got a $4 billion company. Yeah. So I think that's you know, absolutely incredible. And I, I think that's been a real inspiration for a lot of people a lot of young scientists in the food area seeing that as a paradigm and think like I can do, you know, I don't know if I can do that, but I, you know, I want to do something like that. I want to use my science to change the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, every burger that somebody eats from impossible burgers are beyond me. You know, that's a benefit to sustainability.
1: Right. No, it's awesome that you can, that you can build such a great product and business and be profitable, but also it's causing, it's a great cause for good.
2: Yeah. Awesome. I mean, excited like I drive a Prius, you know, yeah, right. a Prius, yeah, yeah. You know, like a small change you can make in your life that can have a really big impact, it, especially if everyone does it.
1: Yeah. So, are there? Do you have come across people who are have concerns about the safety of eating basically like scientific food, like stuff that's been created like that? Do did, did people just think it's unhealthy or something like that?
2: Yeah, a lot of people do. And I think, I mean, and and some of it's really justified. I mean, I think ideally if we could all cook all our own food uh, and start with fresh fruits and vegetables and other ingredients, I think we would all eat really healthily. But, I mean, just me, I don't enjoy cooking. I haven't got the time to do it most of the time. I'd rather be doing something else. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I really like having convenient foods. But I think, you know, and in the past, I think ultra-processed foods, this is a a big area where a lot of people are, are really against the food industry. I mean, there is some valid criticisms of ultra-processed foods. Um, you know, when you process the food, you break down all the cellular structures in the plant, and therefore it can, it can get digested by your body much more quickly. So you get these spikes in sugar and, and fats in your blood, right. uh, which can eventually you know, disrupt your metabolism and lead to diabetes and things like that. So I think what we need to do now is recognize that's a problem and let's say, well, can we redesign these foods? So we're still using science to create them, but we don't have the adverse health effects Mm -hmm. that we used to have.
1: Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's the next step in evolution where we've how are we doing with basically our food supply? Do we have enough food in the world right now for everybody?
2: Yeah, I think there definitely is. You know, for, I was just on a National Academies meeting in the last two days. Um, so if anyone wants to check it out, it's got healthy food, uh, healthy, healthy body, healthy planet. uh, that's, uh that, that was exactly addressing that issue. You know, it's like what's, what's wrong and what's right with the modern um, food supply. And, you know, how has COVID affected that? And I think the thing is, like, I mean, was really looking at like, the resilience of the food supply. Uh, and they' saying like, like overall it 's quite resilient. the food supply, and I think we do have enough food at the moment to feed everybody it's just not distributed and I think a lot of it 's distributed correctly, and I think a lot of that is you know, sort of policy and economic issues. so I think mm-hmm. we we can produce enough food at the moment, and like just to be saying, like if we all stopped eating meat, we could reduce the amount of land we use by seventy five percent or we mm-hmm. could easy, and easily feed everyone still. so I think you know that we, we can do it. But the big issues are things like climate change. That was one of the issues that came up is, you know, as as the climate changes, we're going to get more sort of severe weather events. So we're going to get more drought. We're going to get more flooding. We get more salination. You know, so we need to get strategies in place now before this happens that we can still produce food for everyone in the future. Uh, And I think there's a whole series of different technologies being used to do that. And I think probably the most powerful one is probably genetic engineering. Which a lot of people are really against genetic engineering.
1: Well, it sounds scary.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but I think you know. But then people, you know, I think they did a big survey and said, you know, would you eat DNA? And I think something like sixty or seventy percent of people said no. I've never eaten DNA. But everyone's eating DNA every day. I mean, it's in the cells of every meat and plant tissue that you eat. Yeah. So we're all eating DNA, and then you know, like you don't want people messing with your DNA, like by genetic engineering or something. But when you cook something, or you put it in the you know piece of bread in the toaster. You're scrambling all the DNA anyway. So it's gonna be very difficult. So I think but I think there are legitimate concerns with any new technology. And I think as scientists we really have to address that. But I think and we need to communicate to the public what are the risks and the benefits. But there are some enormous benefits. You know, you can increase the yields of crops so you can you can get more food, you can make them more resilient to climate change and like increase salt levels, increase temperatures, you can increase the quality of the food so you can get more protein or minerals or vitamins in your food. So I think there's all sorts of potential benefits you can do.
1: So does that mean like we somehow we would, you know, alter yeah, like a vegetable or something, but and it's still being grown, but it's being. But now that we're growing it, we've altered it so that it's more resilient to climate to a different climate or it has more nutrients for yeah. us. Is that what that means?
2: Yeah, that's one application. And there's already products on the market. So, for example, like there's some products to try and um, decrease food waste. So there's these things, uh, like I think, called Arctic apples. So what they've done is genetically engineered the apple. Uh, They've knocked out one of the enzymes in the apple uh, called polyphenol oxidase. So that enzyme is what causes apples to go brown. So now what you can do is you cut the apple and it doesn't go brown. And they've done the same thing for potatoes. So that really decreases food waste. So you don't have to, you know, you could package the little slices, uh, you know, and they're going to stay for a long time. Wow. So, that, you know, that's just one, one example. I mean, I think they're making things like, you know, I don't know, pink pineapples and stuff like that. So there's all sorts of like Willy Wonka kind of things you can do as well with this technology. But you can, there's also some important ones for environmental and health reasons.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they're making, uh, they made those square watermelons a few years ago.
2: Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. I think they're making like uh, like animals without horns you know wow. i don't know why i don't buy that but i don't know what the benefit is for that or you know they're changing the um composition of the pig so they've got more omega-3 fatty acids in them and omega-3 fatty acids must be beneficial for health so you get rid of the saturated fat and you put these healthy fats and they've done that with um i think soybeans as well so, so, oh my so, gosh so you genetically engineered them to produce like the equivalent to like a fish oil like a healthy fish oil but it's actually in a plant so you can get all these beneficial lipids uh, you know, from a, a an easily growable source and really abundant source.
1: Wow, that is amazing. So, uh, this may be too complicated to explain, but how does that how does that process work? How do you genetically, like, engineer or modify a, a plant like that?
2: Yeah, so I think what they do is um, they use a, a, a new tool called CRISPR. So, like, so CRISPR is this uh, genetic engineering tool where you can take a slice of it out and you can like cut cut the DNA. And, you know, put like a new piece of DNA in that and then that will then that will um, create like a new enzyme or, or um, you know, you knock out an enzyme, add a new enzyme or something like that. So you can change the biochemical pathways inside the plant. Wow. So We're doing some work with um, a company in Boston who's doing, uh, doing that called Motif. So they, they can just, they're, they're trying to create new kinds of proteins as food ingredients so they can produce like a, an animal protein. But that's never been inside an animal, so they just grow it in yeast. So they have—it's almost like growing beer. You have these big fermentation tanks, uh, and they have all these like computers, and they—they they design the DNA or modify the DNA. Then they grow up these yeast, and then they produce these proteins. It could be a fish protein, or a cow protein, or a tiger protein. And then you can isolate that protein. You can put it into a food as a food ingredient. So, if, so if you wanted to, you can have like foods that are, um you know, like create with this sort of cellular agriculture technique. But so you could, again, you can uh, address issues like sustainability. You know, instead of having animals, you actually grow them in, in like, via fermentation tanks.
1: Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. so that's kind of the, the... That's the perception I have, is that, these, that the future of food will just all be grown in a lab. But, and I guess, is that kind of true?
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, I think some of it can be grown in a lab. I mean, I think that's still most of the food's going to be grown in fields, I think. Okay. Uh, but again, you know, but that's been really revolutionized as well with things like, um, you, know, uh, you know, sort of robotics and artificial intelligence is having a huge impact on drones and things like that. So I think a lot of the big farms now have got um, sort of robot combine harvesters and robot machines that will sow everything. And you can see like why that could be useful like with a, the with a COVID problem. You know, it was difficult to get farm workers uh, mm. to come and work on the farm, especially if you're getting them from other countries. Um, so these could be, you can make your agriculture completely autonomous. Uh, you can, you know, the, the, you get a, a robot will sow all the seeds and then you, you'll have like a drone will fly over them, taking pictures of them. And this is happening already. And then the, uh, and you can put little sensors in the soil or in the plants and it can tell you the health status and the maturity of the plant. So instead of just watering it sort twice a day every day, you only water it when it needs watering, or you Mm -hmm. only put pesticides when it needs pesticides, or fertilizers when it needs fertilizers. Um, So then you can like do precision nutrition for plants, and and it can save lots and lots of resources, and it makes sure that you get less waste and you get healthier plants. And then you have a robot comes along, it's sort of exactly the right time. It picks them all up, it goes to another you know uh, factory, like autonomous truck takes it to a factory. And then, you know, it processes it all up, you know, again, autonomously using robots. So I think, wow. you know, so, so I think that's going to be really exciting, but it could be quite scary as well, because, you know, a lot of people's jobs are involved in the food industry. Yeah. So, you know, what's going to happen to all these people whose jobs have been displaced by these uh, sort of robots?
1: Right. That's a good point.
2: But what what
1: you just described is really exciting, especially when you can have those types of sensors and precisely add the, the nutrients to the soil or the water that you need that's really
2: exciting to hear yeah then you collect all the data and then you feed it into like an artificial intelligence program and then it can like correlate like the amount of feed you gave and the height of the plant and nutritional value of the plant so that you can optimize the condition so you keep going around the loop and you find like this is exactly what i need to water it. this is exactly how much i need to get it to get the optimum growth and the optimum health of the plant So, like, all of these are making it much, much more efficient to produce food. Right. So I think think that's all really cool. And then I think the other cool thing that's related to that is all these sort of vertical greenhouses. You know, so instead of having to transport food across the world, we're sort of building uh, these um, next-generation greenhouses, like, on the top of parking lots or the top of buildings, and you've got, like, piles and piles of uh, different plants, and they're all... You've got sensors everywhere that are monitoring, you know, the humidity and the temperature and the nutrient content. The plants are all being grown in in sort of like water or air. Um, So you get really high-quality plants. You get very little waste. And, again, there's very few humans involved. It's all run by robots. And and these are very close to a city so that you can transport them to a city really, really quickly. So you've got much less fuel costs, much less time. Um, So there's lots and lots of potential advantages.
1: Yeah. That's like, I was just watching um, the show Westworld on HBO and they had their third seasons all in the future in the, in the city. And that's what all the, all the buildings have, you know, plants on them on the top. They're being grown or the whole side is, is covered with, you know, vegetation. So that's cool. They got it right, I guess.
2: Yeah. And I think it's already happening in some places, you know, like Singapore, you know, you look at some of the buildings in Singapore and they've already got that kind of stuff there. Yeah. It's such a, like St. Paul's, a really small island, and is you know it's really hard for them to grow food. So this makes makes perfect sense for somewhere like that. And but so I think it one, yeah.
1: Well, and, and then so would you be? Would we be able to by kind of altering these? You know the the plants and stuff. Would we be able to grow? You know something on a on a building in LA here that normally wouldn't be able to grow in this climate.
2: Yeah, I mean, because you can put it in a contained. Once you've got it in a greenhouse. Then you can control the environment so you okay. can control the temperature and the humidity and the nutrients so yeah you know and especially for massachusetts you know in winter you know it's really hard to grow things like tomatoes or lettuce and stuff thing. but with these you can grow them all year round so you don't have okay. to have like a crop twice a year you can have it you know i don't know five or six times a year yeah and there's already huge huge greenhouses like this um working like things one in new jersey where it's, it's got like eight 800 different plants that are grown in there already And like shipping them into the big cities. So cool. And
1: then, so does this kind of address, because you mentioned that a big problem with, with, you know, food in the world right now is distribution. Is this what you mean by distribution is getting food to the right places?
2: Yeah. I mean, this this would be part But That would really be a solution that might have a sustainability benefit, but it's probably going to be for richer people because the kind of crops you can grow at the moment are going to be, you know, sort of high value fruits and vegetables to make Mm -hmm. this, are economically viable at the moment, so I think. But I think what we really need is we need government subsidies that you know are going to put funding so that we can have this kind of thing, you know, that's going to go to you know the people who really need it, you know, because I think you know the people who really need it are people with a lot less money, because uh, that's they t- tend to have worse diets, and as a result, they tend to have worse health. Yeah.
1: You know. So we've kind of gone to the point where you know in the past hundred years or so we've been able to get produce enough food for everybody but now we're getting in the phase where let's make this stuff healthy
2: yeah and sustainable
1: yeah and sustainable right that's a big that's a big big issue isn't it
2: yeah definitely
1: yeah man okay this is great i love i love learning about this stuff it's so interesting and and so exciting for you to share all this and kind of what's happening um okay, so we need it to be sustainable. We need it to be healthy. Let's talk about kind of the, maybe the more fun side about how we can make food like more tasty, I guess, or more, I don't know, more enjoyable.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a real art and science, you know, the taste aspects of it. And we have a new professor who her whole job is just understanding the sort of physiology of the mouth and like how food interact with it. And again, it's incredibly complicated. You know, you think when you you know like a food is a really complicated material which has got you know hundreds or sometimes thousands of different types of molecules in there and you know that gets broken down in your mouth and some of these tiny molecules will go into your nose and you have hundreds of different sensors in your nose that are all slightly different and you've got you know like your, your taste receptors on your on your mouth it's almost like an orchestra play and you've got you know like the the what the, what, what the orchestra sounds like depends on like the violin and the drums and, and the cello and all these other different instruments. That gives you the overall sound of the, the song, and that's the same with food. It's like a strawberry flavor. It's not one flavor that gives a strawberry flavor. It's something like 47 different flavors that contribute to a natural strawberry flavor, and they have to get from the food to your nose at exactly the right time. So they take a certain amount of time to get there. So if you're trying to make an artificial strawberry flavor, it's incredibly complicated, you know, because you have to get all these different instruments playing together to get the right sort of sound, you know, because if everything's not playing at the same time, you know, you, you get some of that sounds jumbled up. Right. So I think a lot, you know, that's a, a lot of it's still an art. It, if you know, it's a really probably well-paid job in the food industry as a flavor scientist mm-hmm. because there's so much art involved in that. And once you've worked in that area for a long time, nobody wants to lose you because you've got this sort of wealth of knowledge. But I think right. now, you know, we're really trying to understand at a more fundamental scientific level is, you know, what are taste buds, you know, like the, the, these proteins that sit in your, we've in the, got, you know, proteins that sit in the membranes of your tongue and like how do molecules get there and what kind of molecules will stick there and, and, and then how does a signal get sent to your brain and how can we control that? Yeah. So, for example, you know, people like Pepsi and Coke, you know, they have loads and loads of people working in this area to try and get sugar replaces. You know, so you know, you take out the sugar, but it doesn't taste the same. And use all these artificial sweeteners and they all give you know some sweetness, but they give like bitterness and metallic flavors. Uh, and everyone wants all natural flavors now. So how can you find natural compounds that are going to behave like sugars but don't have all the calories? Uh, so that's a really sort exciting scientific area as well, with a lot of sort of hardcore biochemistry and biology behind it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because that's insane. Like, it's so complicated, all this stuff. How? Because it's not just, you know, it's not just a flavor. It's like, that's why a strawberry starburst doesn't taste like a strawberry.
2: <laughs> right, and I think the other thing that's really interesting. There's this, this guy from London, uh, from England called Charles Spence. So he's at the University of Oxford. And I think his parents, like, used to work in the circus. So he used to travel around England as a circus. And then he ke- became um, a professor. Now he's, like, a professor of gastrophysics in... in um in England. And he does some really incredible stuff. So he does stuff like you put the same food on a square plate or you put it on a round plate and it tastes sweeter on the round plate. So Whoa. it's exactly the same food. But just by changing the nature of the plate, it, it tastes differently. So if you put it on a white plate versus an orange plate, it tastes completely differently. And he's, he's saying, like, it even depends on the music you listen to. So, like, if you taste something, it's, it's like a nice, smooth, classical music in the background it tastes a certain way. But if you have like heavy metal, jagged music in the background, it it tastes really different. It tastes more bitter with a heavy metal music, you know, and it tastes sweeter with the the sort of smooth classical music. So like all these social cues, so it's not just the physics and chemistry, what's going on in your mouth. It's your psychology and all your stored up experience in your brain will affect like how you actually perceive things.
1: Man, that's cool. So I imagine restaurants and, and places are already taking advantage of stuff like that.
2: Yeah, so I think he consults a lot for like these uh, high-end molecular gastronomy restaurants, but just restaurants in general. Yeah, you and I think like the size, you know, the size of your plate. If you want to eat less, use a smaller plate. Yeah, you know, because it, you feel fuller. You know, again, so just like those psychophysics kind of ideas can be really have a lot of important consequences on your on your health and wellness. Right. I think one of the interesting, most interesting ones that I came across when I was writing that future foods book is um, that this. Like, if you want people to eat healthier, put a statue of a mermaid in a restaurant. And I, and I was like, what? Like, that's really weird. And it was like, if people are surrounded by statues of mermaids, they're more likely to order fish on the menu. And fish is healthier than, say, beef. So if you want to have, like, if you want to imp- improve people's health, put, you know, mermaid statues ar- around.
1: <laughs> Whoa, that's cool. Yeah. I'd be so interested to learn, like, what would be kind of the, uh, if you could tailor your, your own kitchen or, or dining room to make it like, to, to encourage you to eat less or eat healthier, you know, that would be really fun to dive into.
2: I think the most important thing is put all your snacks in the cupboard. Well, first of all, don't buy them and put them in the, in the cupboard. Yeah, cause <laughs> I was having a bit of a, like, because like I was in lockdown in the COVID thing. I was just sat in the kitchen working and there was snacks everywhere. So I, I definitely put on some COVID pounds. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I've been trying to like cut out all the snacks recently, so that's helped a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when
1: they're right there, like when when I go when we travel, we have my family has a motorhome, and I haven't been in there a while. But when we travel, it's like you're living in the kitchen, you know, like the the cupboards are right there. It's so hard not to eat and just snack on those things all day.
2: Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, So does this like the kind of the engineering flavor and taste and stuff? Could that mean? You know, even if you make a incredibly nutrient dense and healthy piece of broccoli, like people don't like broccoli generally, it doesn't taste great. Like, can we can that also be changed to encourage people to eat it or and make it taste better?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's research that's showing that. I mean, first of all, you don't you might not need to change it. If there's research showing that if you have like a mother, like when the mother's pregnant, if you give uh, lots of broccoli and vegetables. Then that goes into the, the amniotic fluid and into the baby in the in the in the womb. And when it comes out, it you know it, it likes to eat. It, 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 it like it doesn't mind broccoli and vegetables. Or if you're breastfeeding and you eat lots of vegetables, that goes through the milk to the baby, and then they get a taste for all these bitter compounds that are in things like broccoli and vegetables. So that's oh. one way to try to keep that. And the other way is to use like genetic engineering, like gene editing, and you can make like a chocolate broccoli. So you could, I don't know, put like, you know, somehow engineer it so that you get some sort of chocolate molecules uh, in the broccoli and that might make it a bit tastier for kids.
1: Yeah. Wow. So I can, I can blame my mom for my sweet tooth because she ate too many sweets while she was pregnant with me.
2: Yeah, probably. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Man, well, that's kind of cool to hear, actually, that you can kind of control it right now just through, you know, without science, I guess. Yeah. Very, very cool. Man, well, this is exciting. And then what about, um, we mentioned it a bit, but kind of the convenience factor. Are we going to be able to get, I I saw this in your book, you mentioned, like, are we going to have 3D food printers in our homes?
2: Yeah, I think there already is. You know, we've got one in our lab that we use. And actually, we just ran something recently for like 3D printing for Mars missions, like in outer space. Mm-hmm. So again, like, you know, in, in this, I mean, that's probably the best application for them at the moment is, you know, if you're an astronaut in outer space, you can't take every kind of food with you. And you don't know what you're going to want, you know, like, or in two years' time, what you want on a Friday? So, but if you can actually 3D print whatever you want, you know, like Star Trek, you have the yeah. Star Trek food replicator, you just type it into a computer screen and it produces, you know, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding or something like that, or, you know, apple crumble or whatever, or whatever you want. Um, so I think we're already making some progress in that area. So I think we can make sort of quite simple foods, um, mm-hmm. things like chocolate, you know, like or icing. So if you want to make like a, um, a wedding cake and you wanted to like three D print you and your, your your partner on there, you could three D print you know exactly a replica of you on the top of the, the wedding cake. Wow! Or you can create all these fantastic um, sort of sculpture, three D sculptures in chocolate. So I think if I was a patisserie chef. I think I will be trying to do some computer training. Yeah, right. That's, that's going to be the future. I think is uh, you know all these artisanal skills that people have taken years and years to learn, you can do it. You know, with a three D printer now.
1: Right. Yeah. That's that's like the the uh, depressing part, sort of, is how people they've you know developed such an amazing skill to make this stuff, but it's like, well, now we can just three D print it, and it's a lot faster and cheaper, and kind of looks better.
2: Yeah. So you I know? think there's some rich applications where it could work like that. But then I think in general, I mean, I think the ideal scenario is it's going to be like a microwave. It's like everyone's going to have one in your home. You're going to be at work, you're going to get your iPhone out or whatever phone you've got, you're going to tap it in your your meal and then on your way home, 3D printer's going to start sort of construction it. And you get home, you've got this, you know, like, I don't know, pizza with fries or whatever you wanted to 3D print uh, there. But I think in in reality, it's going to be more complicated than that. I think we're still trying to work out what 3D inks we can have. So like, you know, know, we might have to have a protein ink or a carbohydrate ink or a fat ink, you know, and somehow, you know, like, so it's going to be like a color printer, you know, where you need these different things. And then it's, you know, it's typically very slow and it's, you have to clean it afterwards. So I think, Mm -hmm. and then, and then maybe cook it at the same time. So maybe you have to have a little heater at the end so you can actually cook it as it's coming out. Right. So I think there's still, still some issues to be you know, resolved, but I think there's, you know, people are making rapid progress in this area.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, you know, for the, like a 3d printer, chocolate printer, for example, is that, is the like input, the ink into that, is that just kind of like a melted chocolate?
2: Yeah, I think that's all it is really. So I think, okay. and the good thing about that is it just comes out and solidifies. So you've got this right. nice 3D, 3d shape. So I think what you have to do, if you're trying to print, you know, like a French fry, then you have to have something else that comes out and it'll solidify, you, you know, and stay hot. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that's, that's really difficult. But <laughs> I can imagine. You well, know, you can buy them now. And uh, again, the Netherlands—they seem to be really pioneering a lot of this sort of um, sort of future food kind of applications. You, you can buy these 3D printers, like not re- you know maybe six hundred dollars or something like that. You have oh. one in your home, and you know, so you can play around with it, or you can download recipes from the internet um, to you know create like fancy structures, or you can make your own up. You know. And so, so so
1: our, so, like, our, we'll go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Well, yeah, so to be a chef, you also have to be a computer programmer. You know, yeah, you, you have to like three D computer sculptures that you can print out.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that, so those ones that you can buy now for six hundred or so—is that um, are they like are they creating food, or is it just kind of like you're putting food in one form and it comes out another? I don't know. Do yeah, you get what I'm
2: saying? Yeah, yeah they tend to make very simple sort. of... T- Almost like desserts and, and gels and things like that. So you okay. you put in some kind of it's usually something like that, alginate or some kind of food ingredient that'll form a gel. So you, you get it in like a paste and it'll come in like a little tube, you stick it in, that'll be the ink, and then it'll print this shape. So you might have some sort of interesting uh interesting shape cake or something like that at the end of it.
1: Right. Okay.
2: That makes sense. It, yeah. Jesus. it look really cool. Yeah. So I think if you were, you know, you were trying to do like something fancy for a meal this might be like a little add-on that you would, you would put on the side of the plate or something.
1: Yeah. Okay. I I get that. So I see where we're at now, but yeah, the to eventually in the future have it where we just, we have, everybody has their printer and there's, you know, the, the protein input and the carbohydrate input, and then it can make like almost anything that would just be so amazing.
2: Uh, Yeah. So I think potentially. I think again, like food's so complicated at the sort of molecular and the nanostructured level to actually, mimic that fine texture with these 3d printers is quite challenging but yeah. it's, do, it's partly doable so yeah it'd be interesting to see how it develops in the future
1: mm-hmm. yeah so where are we now like how is the um what i guess what's the what's the future look like like how are things progressing what can we kind of expect
2: yeah i, mean, I think probably a lot of things will look the same like in the supermarket but what's behind the scenes will be really different Okay. You know, so I think you know, a lot of companies are really focusing on this sort of sustainability issue and, and really making big efforts to try and make their, their food supply much more sustainable. So it might, you know, you might buy the same product, it tastes the same, but you know, it's 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 saved lots of gallons of water, it's caused less pollution, stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think the other thing is that like maybe we'll re engineer some of these foods so that they don't have these negative health effects. So they may be, you know, they've they got reduced fat or reduced sugar or starch, uh, but they taste delicious still. You know, they're just as convenient. They look, they look and feel the same. And, you know, maybe we don't even notice. So this mm-hmm. guy was just talking from one company that they have like kids' yogurts, and they just reformulated them to be like 25% sugar in, um, and the kids didn't even notice. So I oh. think, you know, so I think things like that are going to be important because we do have some really big problems. There is a lot of problems with, you know, chronic disease. And I think in one of these meetings I was at, it was saying like it's $1.8 trillion we spend on healthcare costs, which is associated with sort of preventable chronic diseases. So if we could re-engineer the food system so we have a, a much healthier option of foods available for consumers that are easy for them to, to incorporate into the diet, then we can sort of address that problem.
1: Yeah, that's that's the like exciting and encouraging part is that a lot of chronic diseases and stuff that people suffer from can be prevented and uh, maybe eliminated completely with just eating healthier, eating better engineered food.
2: Yeah, but we need that. Already. I think we know that already, don't we? I think almost everyone knows that. You know, if you just eat that's true. eat less and eat more fruits and vegetables, you're going to be healthier. But I think there's just so many other other factors that are important. So that's why I think if we can make processed food better so that people don't have to change their lifestyle, they don't have to pay more, but they get all these health benefits, I, th- I think that would be really good.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. We do already know that, but it's, you know, when it's when it takes more work and it costs more money, people aren't going to do it. Yeah, exactly. So how do you see that? like on a kind of a practical level, have you, what are your thoughts as to how this will roll out? Is it kind of, do consumers need to start demanding this stuff from their food providers, from their food manufacturers, or is it more on a, like a regulation
2: side? Yeah, I think both approaches are really important. I think we need more, you know, we we need more consumer awareness uh, Mm -hmm. and more consumer knowledge about, you know, what, what, what are in foods and how they affect your health and how they affect the environment. So I think that's a really important part. And that's, (laughs) <laughs> linked to sort of policy changes from the government and like you know how they fund research and what type of fund you know what kind of research that they fund i mean currently i think there's you know like hundreds of times more money spent on healthcare than food so like and you know there's so many it, there's so many things that we could prevent you know chronic diseases through the food so like let's change you know the directions. you know what change like what kind of foods that we give um what kind of actors in the food industry we give money to so like we make fruits and vegetables cheaper and easier for people to get you know access to mm-hmm. let's you know have education campaigns for the for the public to make them more aware of this sort of relationship between food health and the environment so i think yeah. there's a whole series of different things that we need to do
1: right well I, I think it's encouraging that it is sort of already happening with like you know impossible and beyond meat and whatever you can like you buy that stuff at they haven't had Carls Jr. in Del Taco now, you know?
2: Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So people are people are asking for it and, and it's being given to them, I guess.
2: Yeah, and no, I think it's just changed so quickly. I mean when I was writing that book, it was really, really hard to find an impossible burger. You know, I mm-hmm. managed to find one in a I went to a trip to Miami and I managed to find one. But like, you know, like a year later we were I sat with my daughter in Burger King and you could buy them. So that's just incredible transformation. Yeah. Very, very so that, cool. that, that, that really gives me hope, you know, for the future that, you know, science can really, really change, you know, the the, the kind of foods that we eat and, and that can have really good environmental and sustainability benefits.
1: Mm-hmm. Man. Well, that was good. I feel like that was a, that was a good uh, closer on this to kind of leave people listening with, uh, with some hope on this. So that feels good. Um, well, that was great, Julian. Do we, let's, let's share your book, Future Foods. People can get that
2: where? Amazon, probably. Okay. It's from Springer, it's a publisher, but yeah, Amazon's probably the easiest place to get it from.
1: Okay. I'll have a, uh, a link on there for, or in the description for folks listening to uh, click on that and just buy your book and check all that stuff out. Is there uh, anything else we should share or, or impart yeah, yeah, to people?
2: Think, yeah, it's been fantastic doing it. I mean, just for me, I think it's just, I think food science is a really exciting area. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it can really transform the world. So, uh, yeah, so thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about, you know, something I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: of course. I mean, thank you for coming on, Julian, and, and sharing all this stuff. It It is extremely interesting. I just love learning about it. But it's also really exciting to see that this stuff is happening and we get to experience the benefits of it. So I'm, I'm very excited. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Julian. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. All right.
2: Yeah, you too. Bye now. Bye bye.
1: Woo! We did it. You made it to the end. Thanks for being here. I knew you'd make it to the end. It was a great episode. Thanks, Julian, for being on and sharing all that stuff. Really, really love hearing about that and learning this just crazy stuff that is exciting, and I want it to be here now, and I can't wait. So let's make it happen. But uh, that's it. If you know somebody who may find future foods interesting, who maybe they're trying to eat healthy, hopefully most people are, uh, maybe send them this episode. Maybe they'd enjoy learning about what our foods are going to be like in the future. So appreciate that. Love it. When you guys send these episodes to people and recommend it, that's great. The word of mouth thing. I love it. Uh, you can send me an email, Travis at dot with your tips and ideas and thoughts and criticism and feedback. And I'm on Instagram at Trav DeRose where I post a lot of stuff and, uh, I may post about food in the future. Who knows? Um, That's all. Thanks for being here to the end of this episode. Appreciate it. And I'll see you in episode 90. Wow. Bye.